Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Barbican Screen Talks Archive podcast. In this episode, we're switching things up a bit from our usual filmmaker Q&As. Instead, we're bringing you a recording of our Will Women Save the Day panel discussion on female superheroes, which celebrated the release of Captain Marvel in March 2019. Panel host Sonia Zadurian is joined by Helen O'Hara, the longtime Empire magazine contributor and author of Women vs. Hollywood, Lisa Perth, professor of film at the University of Reading, and comic book artist Rachel Stott, who has worked on superhero titles including Supergirl, and Black Panther's younger sister, Shuri. Between them, these three women know just about everything there is to know about the past, present and future of female superheroes on screen. You'll hear the panel discuss the landmark for representation that was Captain Marvel's release and its implications for the wider franchise of interconnected Marvel Comics-based content. For those not familiar, this is known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU for short. There had been other big female-led superhero movies before Brie Larson took on the Captain Marvel mantle. Gal Gadot first starred as DC Comics icon Wonder Woman in 2017. But Captain Marvel was a particularly big deal. Its release was preceded by a new kind of negative publicity campaign that played out on Twitter and review aggregate site Rotten Tomatoes. Why are some Marvel fanboys, and they are mostly boys, willing to go to such lengths to torpedo a film they've never seen? What is it about the mere idea of a female superhero that gets some people so riled up? Our panel grapples with that here too. Prompted by an audience question, they also discuss the difference between strong female characters and complex female characters, and the significance of the film behind the film, Top Gun. And they look forward to emerging Marvel female heroes like Ms. Marvel, aka Muslim teenager Kamala Khan. It's not all about the women though. Marvel creator Stan Lee, who famously cameoed in every MCU film until his death in 2018, gets a mention, of course. They also talk about the progress Marvel is making and not making in other underrepresented areas, including with LGBT plus identities and different body types. Now that Marvel's first female superhero has finally shot up into the stratosphere, what's next on the horizon? I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks, on Captain Marvel and the women who save the day. Who 
hope you all enjoyed that and have started thinking of questions for our lovely panel. I'm going to ask some first before you get the chance. I'm going to jump straight in with Helen. How does this first introduction to Captain Marvel compare to other origin stories in the MCU? Well, I think basically what they try to do is not do the traditional origin story. When we meet her, she has her powers. She doesn't maybe know the full extent of them, but she has them. And then she spends a whole film basically figuring out what they are and kind of learning who she is and sort of almost works backwards to the origin. We don't really see the origin happen fully until the very end. So I think they're just bending over backwards. They're just desperate to not do what we've seen a million times already. Oh, there is this person and they have this problem and then this thing happens and then they get powers and they must deal with them. I mean, we've kind of played that out, I think. Totally, yeah. Going straight on to Rachel. You are currently working on a Shuri comic for Marvel, which got some ooze in the audience when I said that. That was just me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is going through your mind when you are putting a character like that onto the page, particularly one that is so loved already by fans? It's kind of like, it's interesting just because someone has already been on the book anyway as well. So a lot of the design work and things like that is already, that's like comic book centric, has already been laid out. So you do feel a little bit like you're playing in someone else's sandbox. But that happens a lot with comics and stuff. But with Shuri especially, as soon as you start drawing someone, you get so attached to them. So in the Endgame trailer, you see in the background, like, Shuri, deceased. And I was like, no, my baby. (laughs) You monster. (laughs) Yeah, how dare you? Uh, Whereas before, I'd be like, she was cool. Oh, no. (laughs) Like, So that's always fun and heartbreaking. (laughs) Lisa, you've done a lot of research into particularly 90s action films. Um, Can you talk a bit about the way 90s nostalgia works in the film? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because... The film really hooks into 90s music and actually 1980s, one key 1980s film. So maybe I'd just say something about the music. Not that I'm a music expert, but I think we can gather that this is kind of riot girl music. It's feminist music. It's female focused indie rock. And it's the kind of music which says, I resist the narratives that you want to place on me as a woman. And so I think that's a really key choice for the film and absolutely feeds into the kind of narrative <coughs> arc that Captain Marvel has in the film, that kind of reclaiming that she does of her own identity and her own kind of self-defining, mm-hmm. I guess, you know. But just to say something about the 1980s film, of course, it's Top Gun, okay? Mm-hmm. And this could have been just a really straightforward gender switch, I guess, you know? Captain Marvel as Tom Cruise in Ray-Bans kind of thing. Even but as I a think, goose? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's some lovely references there, but I think, I think it does something a bit more interesting than that. I think it pushes the buddy relationship and it kind of transforms it. So we get the buddy who's actually a female friend who's really important to her. So female friendship comes in. It's not sexualized as it so often is. And that's really positive, I think. The other thing it does is it connects Captain Marvel before she really becomes Captain Marvel to ideas of like propulsion you know, kind of shooting through the air under control because she's got the professional knowledge to do so as a test pilot. Mm. So when she becomes Captain Marvel, really by the end, you're thinking, yeah, she can do this, you know. So the way they use Top Gun, I think, is really nuanced in in a lot of ways. Mm. And is there anything that you've observed about specifically this kind of subgenre of superhero 
films in your research that is maybe echoed in Captain Marvel? Yeah, you call it a subgenre. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're kind of living through the moment where it's just a big old genre on its own, isn't it? But um, I think just coming back to this idea of how women have been permitted historically to show that they're powerful. And so often that's, you know, they've got telepathy, so they're standing on the ground sort of frowning a bit and something's happening elsewhere. There's a lot of kind of stasis in the way that women have to kind of stand by and witness. So they're powerful in some ways, but it's a bit limited. So I think about Black Widow. It's always on the periphery of that ensemble. She's uh, frowning a lot, you know. There's things going on. And she has got her own narrative arc in Marvel. But she hasn't got superpowers, you know. I think that's really significant. Captain Marvel completely does away with that. And gives us a female hero who is really powerful in the same way as the men. She takes up space. She zooms through space. She enters space, you know. So she's able to, to fly and be powerful in those kind of equal ways, which is really exciting. And um, Rachel, I wanted to ask you about, because you're very much from the comic book world, how this version of Captain Marvel compares to comic book versions that you've maybe liked in the past and how, how that's translated it's uh, it's interesting to the first time I watched the movie because I'm actually more familiar with the original Captain Marvel who was like a blonde dude, you know, copy and paste like <laughs> so many superheroes. Uh, so it was nice to see that Annette Benning's character actually was like essentially him, which was nice because I remember when Jude Law was cast that everyone was like, oh, he's going to be Marvel and stuff. So when you watch a movie, that's really nice. So I like the fact that the Marvel title is now being passed down from woman to woman. That's really interesting as well. But when I knew Carol Danvers, that character, the thing she was most known for up until very recently was just mostly the woman that gave Rogue her powers. Mm -hmm. And that was about it. And she ran around in a swim costume, uh, which, you know, not a bad costume, but, you know, cold. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, so ever since like Kelly Sue DeConnick did like this whole renovation on her and stuff, cool costume and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's great because it's bringing that character of it's taken that character that was good, but you know, it took Kelly to bring it into the modern age and really made it like iconic to the point where it looks like Cap is going to be like the Superman of like the MCU, maybe in the next iteration of movies and stuff. And she's got like the ability to be that. So that's going to be really interesting. So, Helen, going a bit broader now okay. with Marvel and DC, I mean, we've had Wonder Woman and now Captain Marvel both very successful. Where do you think? They will both go from here. Obviously, we've got Wonder Woman 2 in 2020. And what would you like to see them do? It's interesting because we now have two really different superheroines, female superheroes, which I really, really like. We need the same variety that the guys have, basically. It shouldn't just be... I mean, people were literally trying to get me to choose which one is my favourite. And I'm like, they're not similar. You know, Thor versus Captain Marvel would be a better comparison. Like, they're not that similar characters their stories are completely different and I think that's what we want to see going forward I want to see as much variation in the women as we've had in the men I personally really want to see Ms Marvel I feel like we've the Kamala Khan version mm -hmm. you know now we have Captain Marvel we can set her up we can do that and she is so good she's yeah. so good I'd like to see Squirrel Girl let's go crazy <laughs> man you know and there's a lot of potential <laughs> a lot of characters that haven't been tapped I was watching recently for a project I'm doing I was re-watching all the X-Men films and Storm is so underserved, I can't even bear it. I mean, in every single film, she's good and she gets nothing to do. So, I like a Storm movie, like, let's have it. Well, you know. she rises up into the air. Yeah. 
She does rise up. At least she gets to fly. And she looks know? sad a lot. So. <laughs> and she has terrible wigs. So. Yeah. <laughs> she should spend half the movie being like, like readjusting it, like, oh, I'm back. And of course, Shuri as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, But yeah. although Black Panther was practically a female-led movie in terms of numbers. So, so Lisa, do you think the genre changes at all or shifts when you put a female superhero at the centre of it? Kind of depends on the superhero. I think that there's a lot of expectations in terms of audience expectations that come along with that. Lots of anxiety. We've seen some of that in the comments, the below the line comments occasionally. I think uh, one of the reviewers I was reading was accusing Brie Larson of being a bit uptight mm -hmm. as a performer. So, and I was thinking, what does you know, what does a not uptight performance look like and, and where does this accusation come from? So there's that whole context. I think there's the positive is that we start seeing different kinds of examples of strengths. I don't mean different from men, but just seeing that strength in a different kind of context, so attached to women, so they're able to be powerful. They don't have to have massive muscles in this particular kind of genre. They can express their strength in a, a range of ways. So it's exciting. It opens up possibilities. But so often they become kind of pseudo girlfriends. So they're kind of sidekicks and they're kind of pushed to the side. So I think we're still in a process of change mm -hmm. where uh, studios are testing out whether they can put a woman at the center. There's a lot of work behind the scenes to get that done, to get that achieved. So maybe ask again in 10 years' time, and we'll see whether it does change the genre, because at the moment, there's a lot of negotiation going on mm. and a lot of kind of conventions that are being taken up in different kinds mm. of ways. And Lisa, you just mentioned the keyword strong characters, and that was something I wanted to touch on, because at the moment, a lot of the discourse has kind of shifted into a desire for complex over strong. And I wondered where you stood on how you think Captain Marvel did in terms of the complex, strong argument. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make any apologies for, for her being powerful. So what we don't see is lots of skin. And we don't see lots of comedy of the kind of Charlie's Angels kind of thing. So whoops, I've just kicked someone, you know. So I mean, I, I like those films, but, but they try and sort of make you feel more comfortable with powerful women by kind of minimising them through comedy. And this is a film that doesn't use comedy in that way. It doesn't apologise for her. It attaches lots of ideas of strength, which we, we might conventionally associate historically with men. So military strength professional strength control of you know aeroplanes that kind of thing so I think it's making progress really right I am going to allow the audience to ask questions now um, just up at the back there very keen double-handed request <laughs> two hands for two questions if I may first question is why do you think all of the dudes the neckbeards got so enraged about the essence of a female superhero and second question is do you think it's right that disney have kind of used stanley's twitter account to promote the movie because I, I think he would probably be definitely for the film mm. but is it right to take someone that's deceased given stanley's appetite for promotion i, I yeah don't that's true <laughs> yeah. for a second um in terms of the first question i think they are scared they don't admit that they'll say it's because she made the very mild observation that most men on junkets are white men, which is 100% true, and, um, and suggested that maybe publications could try and do better. And for this, she was branded sexist and racist and rude and a self-righteous bitch in one thing that I saw. And that's all nonsense. But they just needed any sort of excuse to get worked up into a frenzy about nothing because they're afraid that they, you know, they're not going to be the lords of culture anymore and they're going to have to share. I mean, <coughs> so get with it. 
and they love themselves a crusade and a boycott. Yeah. So any excuse to be like, there's literally tens of us, you know, <laughs> uh, they'll take it. So they, yeah. honest, they honestly thought this was going to bomb. Yeah, yeah. I really did. That actually, I'm going to jump in now with another one. You got one. Um, Helen, I, w- I actually wanted to ask about Rotten Tomatoes. And if you could talk a bit about what happened with Rotten Tomatoes. And if you think that that's going to have a significant impact on female-fronted films going forward. Well, so what happened was obviously they used to be able to put up a sort of, are you looking forward to this, yes or no? And they had kind of review bombed that and had thousands upon thousands of no's. So Rotten Tomatoes thought, hang on, this isn't particularly fair. It's out of line with similar films. So we're just going to take that away. You can't talk about how excited you are about a movie in advance of seeing it. When, of course, (laughs) they opened the movie for reviews, they did the same thing. They all bombed it with bad reviews, which again, it's just not representative of any other measure of this movie's success or popularity. So it does seem to be an unfair bombing. It doesn't seem to be genuinely loads of negative reviews. So Rotten Tomatoes has basically been trying to kind of control this unrepresentative problem because the point is, if they can't present an overview, then they have no value as a site. So they're trying to protect their product, I think. And these guys are trying to weaponize it against films that don't suit their agenda. They did do the same thing against Ghostbusters and they think it worked. And I think that's what's empowered them. And I think Ghostbusters just wasn't that good a film and that's why it more or less failed. Anyway, um, (laughs) but they did it against Ghostbusters. They tried to do it against Black Panther and it, well, it didn't work out so well for them there either. And they've now tried to do it against Captain Marvel. They're going to keep waging this culture war and I think they're going to keep losing. I mean, overall, because if the film is good, then we're going to go see it. Absolutely. Oh, we have another question down the front. Uh, so the question is for all three of you. I wanted to ask about something you already touched on, which is the complex female characters. And this is something that Joanna Robinson pointed out at Vanity Fair. She said that she's not sure if Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman or any other of the future female characters would be allowed to be vulnerable, to be weak, to make mistakes, or to be emotional. And I feel like we're still at this first phase of female superheroes when they're hyper-competent, they're super-powerful, like Shuri is way smarter than Tony Stark, Captain Marvel can beat anybody into a pulp. So when do you think we can expect to have more characters that are allowed to make mistakes? Because I feel like now we're just making them hyper-content to shield them against the criticism that you just talked about, you know, like against, like, if we have a character make a mistake, like, there's going to be thousands of trolls online being like, see, see, she's not good enough, you know what I mean? So, like, do you think we are ready to have soon, like, characters who are just allowed to make mistakes as well and still be considered valid, I suppose? I feel like that's going to happen a little bit in the sequels. And I feel like that's the way it went for the men as well, that they tended to do pretty well first time out. And then, you know, they faced things that they had to overcome, but they did them pretty well. And then it gets really complicated in film too. And from what I know about Wonder Woman 1984, which of course isn't anything, I wasn't on set. Um, (laughs) I I think it's going to get really complicated and she's going to be quite tested. And I would expect the same of Captain Marvel too. There's a quote I always use a lot, and I always say it's George Miller who did Mad Max Fury Road, but I'm not 100% certain it is. But he said this thing about how once you allow more than one woman in a movie, then you can get a broad range of people. So for ages, 
your personality trait was that you were the woman. It's like you got the funny guy and this cool guy and then the woman and all this kind of stuff. So now we're going into an era where maybe we will see a broader range of people and then you can start to see writers getting more used to giving women like their own distinct personalities and it's not going to cause problems and things like that. But funny women? Come on. No, no that's just a myth <laughs> spread by... <laughs> yeah, I mean, will Captain Marvel just get sucked into the frown in Endgame? That's the question. I mean, let's not forget that there, there is complexity in the Captain Marvel origin story too. You know, we don't have to wait for all of that to come in the sequels. You know, the emotional arc that she goes through, the fact that she's already testing her boundaries and sometimes making mistakes in that first film. And I think that gives us a good platform, maybe even a better platform than from what I've seen of the first Wonder Woman film, to have a rounded female character who gets that nice narrative arc in the later films, you know, that she may make mistakes, that she may be compromised in some way. Do you have any more questions? Oh, yes. Uh, one up the back there on the left. Um, I think when Brie Larson was announced as Captain Marvel, she was a newly minted Oscar winner. And again, I think she's the first of the leads in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to be an Oscar winner, or at least the lead superhero. Yeah. And do you think that's a reflection of them needing to kind of boost the female lead or just a reflection of the type of talent that Marvel can now attract? I'm inclined to go with the latter, just because if you look at the cast of even Iron Man, their first sighting, they had... Well, Gwyneth, obviously, but Jeff Bridges was a multiple nominee at that point. I think he hadn't won yet. Uh, Terrence Howard was a nominee again. I mean, they've gone for Oscar winners from the start and Oscar nominees, I think. I also have a theory, which is that it might be to do with her jawline, right? Okay, so it's not just that she's an Oscar winner. She's got a very square jaw. And this may seem like a facetious thing to say, but if you're trying to get someone into a movie where you're going to reference Top Gun, where you're going to have a military pilot and that person's then going to become this super powerful superhero, then you might want to reach back to some of the iconography of masculine strength as it kind of manifests in superhero films and in action films and so on. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination suggesting this is the only reason Brie Larson is in this role, but I think that it's an interesting part of her visual look in this film. Hide because of phrenology. <laughs> I know, it is, it is slightly dubious, uh, but, um, but yeah, let's see. But, I mean, you're probably right that having an Oscar didn't hurt, certainly, against protect them against criticism. I'm sure it wouldn't hurt. And I, I've often wondered whether she would have been cast had she not just fresh come off the Oscar. But she's fab and she's in it, and I won't question it anymore. Um, any more questions? Hi, this is for everyone. How do you think our approach to putting female superheroes on film has changed since the days of... Supergirl and Elektra and Catwoman to where we are now. Okay, so... Uh, the, <laughs> uh, Maybe an obvious question. Those Sorry. wonderful memories. I mean, I think if you, if you think through that list, what you're seeing often is a real kind of hanging on to traditional ideas of femininity. So the nurturing mother figure someone who's kind of reluctantly given a sort of a young girl to kind of look after while she's also doing all this kind of martial arts stuff. And that's quite common, actually. I mean, that, you know, the Charlie's Angels films give you a kind of someone you can, who's nice to look at, who can be your perfect girlfriend, but is also doing martial arts and so on. You look back to even aliens, that kind of thing. You've got the angry, the angry maternal figure, so angry that she can shoot at aliens and all that kind of thing. I'm not trying to minimize those films, particularly not the aliens films, but you can see that that's a kind of a, a tradition in the way that Hollywood has tried to incorporate women. It's like, it's okay, she's doing this physical action-y stuff because she's angry because of this and it's to do with her femininity. 
I think what's so exciting about Captain Marvel is that it doesn't do that. It does talk about her being a woman, and it talks about the way in which she's grown up in a kind of patriarchal society that's telling her to limit the space that she takes up, to limit her sense of herself and what she can be. But it's not trying to say, oh, she's being a mother here or she's being a girlfriend or something like that. It takes great pains, actually, to not show very much skin. So she's got the Captain Marvel suit. She's got her grunge outfit. None of these things, you know, are sort of skimpy or anything. It takes great pains not to sexualize some of the relationships that she's in. So the buddy kind of relationships, the relationship with Nick Fury, the relationship with Jude Law's character and so on. So I think that's really positive. I mean, I think the big difference for me is that those films were made to try to appeal to a male audience. And I feel like these films are being made at least partially to appeal to a female audience. And they're trying, therefore, to figure out what women want in a non-Mel Gibson way. Um, and, and, but, the, but, you know, it's, it's, feminism is the radical idea that women are people, and I feel like they're just treating them as people and trying to take them as characters and not treat them as, you know, fantasies, which I think some of those women, as you say, basically are. Um, you were saying about like her relationships with people not being sexualized, which I think is great. But do you think this is kind of a stepping stone towards showing more diverse sexuality representation in terms of like you know gay characters in the future? Ideally, I would always want like more queer, as long as everyone's right me saying queer content, queer content in movies and things like this. But I always remember when Beauty and the Beast was coming out, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, it's full of gays!" And everyone was like, "Either yes or like no." <laughs> and then it came out, and it's literally Lefou going, "Ding!" It's some random guy, and I was like, "Okay, everyone lost their minds <laughs> over that." So anytime I get the slightest bit like, "Oh, maybe with Carol," I'm like, "Oh, maybe in like twenty years." <laughs> Yeah, I sort of think about the Tessa Thompson example in Thor Ragnarok. You know, you get all this press about how she's definitely bisexual, and then you watch the film, and it's sort of like, well, yeah, but you have to really try hard to fit the pieces together. It's not like she gets a scene where it's confirmed in some way, you know. Or Donald Glover, they did the same thing in um, Solo. Absolutely. So it's the same kind of negotiation, you know, they're, they're testing things out. Mm. It's particularly annoying when you get lots of press and then there's nothing yeah. sort of there. Mm. But I think they've kept things open with Captain Marvel so that they can go down that road if it's felt safe to do so and so on. So perhaps for the future. And we've already got Stephen Bucky. Totally a couple. <laughs> Definitely a couple. Text can it. <laughs> there is a lot of press at the moment about Marvel seeking their first openly gay lead superhero and they're they're it's all rumors but they're in talks with actors who are openly gay so the i mean the jury is still out on whether they'll follow through but there is a lot being written at the moment and i suspect that what's happened with black panther what's happened with captain marvel i think that they are realizing that diversity and inclusion and being more inclusive is beneficial in more ways than one I mean, Batgirl on TV for DC, I think, will also be a bit of a test case. Mm. People seeing how that does. And I, I don't know if Birds of Prey will have a little bit of that as well, maybe, yeah. when that comes out. And I mean, I swing from it only takes, it's only taken them 17 or 18 years <laughs> to, isn't it great that we're living through this moment now when they're actually <coughs> opening things up? Mm. Any more questions? Oh, right down the front. So my question's kind of linked to the last question, actually. Bearing in mind that it's been 11 years since, you know, Iron Man first came out and we've just got a female superhero star in a Marvel film. You know, while we were talking about sort of more diversity in films, how long do you think it might be before we start seeing, say, different body types, disabilities and mental health issues and anything like that? And I understand that 
this is not something that's ever been really expressed in any superhero film, male ones as well. And I was just wondering whether you see that possibly coming up at any time. It may be another 11 years, but at least she's not walking around in stilettos, so that's always a plus. <laughs> I think there is a bit of a wedge, though. I feel like there's a little yeah, bit. a little bit. I mean, we've had PTSD. I guess that's the closest we've been to sort of mental health issues. That was sort of Iron Man 3. There was, there was a fair amount of that. It wasn't explicitly named, but I feel like it was there. Yeah. I feel like that might be the, the one that comes first. You might get a little bit of the TV series for Vision and uh, Scarlet Witch. You could get into some of her issues, which in the comics are major. Um, <laughs> and, and she's had real, real trouble. So you might get into that. Um, if you put Scarlet Witch's stuff up, they'd be like, too much, too yeah. much. Take it back. <laughs> um, in terms of disability, I, I don't know. And in terms of body types... Because yeah. I was not just thinking about, say, you know, just anything from bigger bodies, from women who are more more muscly, more masculine looking traditionally, anything. Because, I mean, as wonderful as it was, and as much as I'm going to see it like another six times, mm -hmm. she is a very attractive woman and she is very conventionally attractive. And, um, yeah, I just think it would be interesting to see more representation, both through sexuality, through gender, through everything <laughs> well i think that the like the source material for so many years has been comic books for so many years like the people making the comic books have been straight white dudes who know what they like because society tells them you like this kind of lady and put her into your comic book and stuff and we're like not in recent years like in you know the past few decades we have seen more and more women entering the industry so you're seeing a much broader range of like saying about ms marvel kamala khan uh i don't know if you've seen a comic book called faith She's like a larger lady who's also a superior and it's awesome. It's written by Jodie Hauser, who I love. And yeah, so we're seeing now like women are coming in and going, okay, now we want to see people that look like us, that sound like us and do stories like us. And not just women, but people of colour and people with disability and things like that. Probably got time for one more very quick question. Hi, um, I was wondering why you think Marvel have included many more female main characters in their TV shows like Agents of Field or Agent Carter as opposed to in their films? was safer there have been more women on tv i think and more women leading tv shows in the past couple of decades the percentages of female leads on tv are much much higher i mean in hollywood traditionally it's been hovering around 10 percent in tv i don't know exactly but i'm guessing it's well over 35 i would say so it's been easier to sell a female lead on tv than it has been in uh in cinemas and of course even in tv and agents of shield i mean yes you had sky but you also had agent colson and it was very much hung on him so they kind of you know were able to kind of fudge it i think a little bit in that case and going back to your earlier point about the testing ground as well you know i think marvel in particular have been using using it as a testing ground television in particular i'm afraid we're gonna have to wrap it up there thank you so much for coming please join me in thanking our panel Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk on Captain Marvel. Join us next time to hear more filmmakers and film fans talking about the movies. And in the meantime, please do subscribe and rate the Barbican Screen Talks podcast via Apple Podcasts, Acast or your usual podcast providers or by visiting barbican.org.uk. And we're always keen to hear your thoughts. You'll find us on social media at Barbican Centre. Barbican Screen Talks Archive is presented by me, Eleni Jones, and produced by Jane Long for Loftus Media. We'll be back next time with French filmmaker Matty Diop 
talking about her directorial debut feature, The Extraordinary Atlantics. Until then, be well and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.